Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. With me, as always, is Charles W. Chuck Bryant, which means that you're listening to Stuff You Should Know. All right. As straight ahead as you've been in a long time, my friend. Yes. Very nice. Thanks. You think? Yeah. I try to mix it up every once in a while. Well, consider it mixed. Thanks. Um, I will, as a matter of fact, from this point forward. <laughs> Chuck, um, quick, who discovered America? Christopher Columbus. That's wrong, Chuck. Is it? Yeah, even if you uh, qualify it by saying what European discovered America. Right. Uh Columbus was beaten by a good 500 years by the Norse, mm-hmm. right? Who found uh, who were in Newfoundland? That's not what we were taught in history in Definitely elementary not. school. There's no Norse Day. No, no, that'd be awesome. Actually, no Leif Erikson Day. I don't think there is. Mm. Not in the not U.S. Here, no. Um, and there's also evidence that the Norse were beaten by a good 500 years by an Irish monk. Who used a rowboat to make it from Ireland over to North America? Wow! And he wrote about it. And um, the tenacious monk was that his name? Tena- yeah, that's what I would call him. Yeah. Well, yeah, at the very least, or if not the the completely insane monk, right? The but soggy he, monk. He came back and, and wrote about it and draw or drew some uh, maps, I believe. He drawed some maps. He drawed some maps, <laughs> and um, there. So there is some sort of evidence that. Uh, he made contact with these people. Apparently, the Norse described meeting people who um, were dressed like monks that they had met. So this guy might have come over and been like, you guys are dressed all wrong. Here, we need to church you up. Right. They didn't pillage as well as the uh, Europeans did, though, in Columbus and the Canada. That single Irish monk? Yeah. I'm pretty sure he felt outnumbered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if, if you qualify who what European discovered America, there's debate right there. Um, there's evidence that the Chinese beat Columbus by 70 years. I should say there's some evidence that's highly questionable. And also, by the way, you can read an article I wrote on the Irish monk and an article I wrote on the Chinese beating Columbus. No wonder you know all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever hear the Louis C.K. bit on uh, Indian giving? No. You want to hear it? Yeah. It's awesome. He's talking about basically the Indian giving is probably the most offensive thing you can say on earth yeah. because it implies that we like they gave us the land and that or we get <laughs> and that we wanted it back and they wouldn't give it back and uh he's he's talking about the uh the settlers coming over and saying can we have ev- everything <laughs> and the indian said well we don't really have we just use it and enjoy it and share it and then we started killing everybody and he does like a knife thing and the indian says dude if this is what have is can we not do that that's <laughs> really good i love that guy oh he's great and because chuck just paraphrased everything that's not copyright infringement no i don't think so okay so chuck we, we've we've clearly ruled out christopher columbus as the discoverer of north america right yes um, who did discover North America, though? You have to ask this question. Let's say Columbus comes over. He thinks he's in India, and uh, he shows up, and he's like, hey, you guys are Indians, but you you look a little crazy, you know, and finally comes to realize that he's not in India, that he's just discovered this new place. Right. But that immediately begs another question that I'm sure it took a little while for people to come up with because they were so excited that they just discovered this whole new landmass. An awesome landmass. Yeah, the best landmass. Yeah. Um, 
but the question had to eventually come up like, wait a minute, where did these people come from? How did they get there? How did they get there? Yeah. For millennia, there was a theory, a widely accepted theory uh, in both the public and scientific lives mm-hmm. um, of spontaneous generation. Right. Like just if you put left meat out too long and it started to rot, uh, flies showed up. Mm-hmm. So rotting meat gave rise to flies. Right. Uh, the same with moldy grain uh, giving life to um, mice. Right. Generally, people thought that there was a life force that could spontaneously produce life and that some some inanimate objects were associated with giving rise to certain animate objects, right? And that was the case in North America, they theorized? I don't know that, right? But in 1864, Louis Pasteur definitively proved that there was no life force that gave rise to um, life. Right. That if you put a... If you sterilized a broth and put it in a flask and kept it sterile, life didn't spontaneously originate there. Right. So he definitively disproved it. So if people did think that the Native Americans in North and South America and Central America did spontaneously generate, Pasteur proved that that wouldn't have happened. So, so there's we're one left theory with the gone. question, where in the name of God did these people come from? Right. How long had they been there? That's an awesome question. I love this article. I thought it was really, really interesting. Thanks. The Clovis. Well, yes. That was the first theory that, uh, well, not the first, but it was widely held for quite a while. Yeah. Um, Actually, in the first couple decades, actually in 1906, I believe, 1908, there was a terrible flood in southern New Mexico. Uh And uh, it killed a lot of people, a lot of cattle. Uh, which in 1908 in southern New Mexico, cattle and people were on par. Right. Um, and it also washed up a bunch of weird artifacts. A yes. lot of weird, um, clear, clearly Indian spearheads, arrowheads, that kind of thing. Uh, and was this in Clovis? It was near Clovis. Folsom, okay. I believe, right. was Folsom the first was site that they found. Correct. Um, so people started, you know, kind of collecting these things and word got out that y- you could find inexplicable or uncommon Spearheads. Yeah, very southern New Mexico spearheads, as it turns out. Yeah. The Clovis Point? Yes. That that's not what it was called yet. People were just like, look at this crazy thing. Right. That's what I think they called <laughs> okay. it, right? Sure. Um and then over the course of the next couple of decades, more and more um archaeological research was done. Uh a guy named um Ridge Whitman. Ridge Whitman. Yeah. Isn't that a cool like nineteen twenties <laughs> name? No, he was just a dude in, in yeah. New Mexico. Um he found a, a one of these very characteristic uh, spearheads in the bones of a bison. Uh-huh. Right? So things are starting to come together. Sure, then finally, a bit. The, the, the tipping point is reached, as Malcolm Gladwell would put it, would put it uh, in 1932 when the state of New Mexico was digging a highway and they started excavating near um, Clovis right. and just found a whole trove of stuff. Bones, spearheads, the whole th- the whole shebang. Yeah, it really gave us a lot of info. And a guy who was excavating nearby, Dr. Eg- Edgar B. Howard, he was excavating for mammoth bones in a cave nearby. Was he the guy that was all mad because they moved the uh, spear points? That was a different guy. Oh, that okay. had happened about 10 years earlier. Gotcha. You, you tell, tell them about that because that's significant. That, well, that people, kind of – it demonstrates the mentality that's going on at the time. Yeah, they found uh, some spear points and I guess they picked it up or something which is like a crime scene. You're not supposed to touch anything, evidently. And uh, he came up on the scene, and he started, you know, he pitched a little hissy fit because 
it's out of context now. It doesn't really tell us that much. It was, and and pretty much the guy who ruled on whether or not um, archaeological evidence was archaeological evidence. I can't remember his name, but he worked for the Smithsonian as a physical anthropologist. Uh Uh, He said, sorry, they touched it. I didn't see it. It could have been placed there. I'm not accepting it. Right, but they found something later and left it intact, right? Right. Ten years later. Yeah, and this is is when all of it starts to take off in 1932, right? right? So all of a sudden, they they figure out that this these spear points had never been seen before anywhere else. Mm-hmm. They have no idea where these things came from. They just knew they were very very old because, like the bison bones right. that they were found within, it was an extinct bison and had been extinct that, for about yeah, ten thousand years. And all of a sudden, it's becoming clear that these people predate any settlement that we'd been aware of. Right, or known as Native American or Paleo Indians. Wow, look at you. Yeah, well, I I have a minor in anthropology. Sure, of course. Um, And so all of a sudden people are saying, okay, well, these Clovis were the first Americans. And in the 50s when uh, um, radiocarbon dating came about, that that proved definitively that these people were old, as old as you would think. 11,200 years ago is what they dated at? Yeah. And how do you do that, Chuck, with radiocarbon dating? I have no idea. All right. Well, what they do is they, they actually take soil samples. Something to do with the isotopes, the, right? In the soil strata. Right. They measure the, the age of the um, carbon isotopes, the C14 carbon isotopes present in the soil. Right. Around the artifact. Right. And the artifacts have to be laid out in a certain way. Like, it, there can't be evidence that it was buried. Humans, when we make a camp, mm-hmm. uh, or when we did 12,000, 10,000 years ago, when we made a camp uh, and just left it, there were very telltale signs, right? So things weren't buried. It, they're just kind of laid about. Right, of what was going on there when they right. were extinct or whatever. So if they're, if that's how the site is presented, mm-hmm. then you can measure the soil and say, okay, well, the, the carbon isotopes in the soil are 11,000 years old. Right. That means that this site was above ground and just left 11,000 years ago, right? right? So that proved that the Clovis were around 11,200 years ago, right? Yes, which is old and definitely pre-Native uh, American. So how did they get here? Well, uh, the Clovis first camp, which was, it sounds to me like they're a uh, very angry bunch of people. They eventually or, became or very, very protective, angry. at least, of their they, they came to be called the Clovis Police. Yeah, I like that name. Yeah. Or what was the... Uh, I wonder if the Clovis New Mexico Police like it. <laughs> if they're like, that's us, dude. Or the Clovis Barrier. They They created this Clovis barrier. Yeah. Basically, anybody who had any other competing theory or idea was an idiot. And right. they had lockdown on, on the academic view right. of the origin of life in, in North America. So, getting back to your question, where did they come from and how did they get there? Mm-hmm. The general theory was that they uh, basically walked during the middle of the, the Ice Age, which I can't imagine living during an Ice Age. Could you imagine like crossing the Bering, what was it called, the Bering Strait Bridge? The Bering Land Bridge. The Bering Land Bridge yeah. is how they got here, supposedly, which is only about a mile wide right. and is now beneath the ocean of the Bering Strait. Uh-huh. And that, that's how they migrated from Siberia to, I guess, what would be like Canada. Uh-huh. And Alaska. And Alaska, and then found their way down to eventually the southeastern United States. And because of that... Um the, so they walked here. There was actually a very sh- a very brief, as far as the the timeline of history goes, there was a very brief moment in mm-hmm. history where the Bering Land Bridge was exposed and where the Laurentide Ice Sheet that covers, like, northern Canada and Alaska right. did at the time 
was receded enough to to allow passage between it and a, a nearby glacier. Can you imagine how scary that was, though? I imagine it was kind of scary, but it was only a mile wide, though. It's not like it wasn't a pleasure walk. It wasn't a stroll. No, but and and you raise a good question. Like, why would you do that? Sure. Why? Food. Food. Exactly. Mastodon, baby, your favorite band. (laughs) The Clove Mastodon Metal. (laughs) And uh, the Woolly Mammoth. That was the theory: is that they were dependent and on these animals as their one of their sole. Uh, sources of meat, I guess. Right. It was very clear based just on their spear points and their arrowheads. Right. The Clovis were extremely advanced big game hunters. Yeah, they were hafted, which I had to look that up. Mm-hmm. It's actually when they attach um, something to a handle. So it's either attached to a bow uh-huh. or a spear shaft or yeah. an axe handle. Right. And uh, that means you can throw it. Yes, or shoot it. Which is how you need to kill a mammoth you can't just walk up to it and stab it you also need a lot of coordination planning mm-hmm. cooperation oh yeah to take down a, a mammoth a mastodon or one of these extinct bison and also i read um the point was made like they they were definitely big game hunters yeah but they um they would take small game too or medium-sized game like deer or antelope or whatever that's what i wondered because they made a big point about the fact that that one of the reasons they may have uh, become extinct was that the mammoth and mastodon were over over hunted Chuck, you have just brought everything to the fore. The Pleistocene overkill hypothesis? Yes, Chuck. What this is, and this is one of the reasons why the Clovis barrier was so supported. Right. And so able to just lock down academia, um, was because it, it was a cautionary tale mm-hmm. about ecological collapse. Right. But I just, I don't get that not every animal, they couldn't have overhunted every animal. Just because they overhunted the mastodon and the mammoth, right. why not skip down to the lower, uh, smaller animals? That's that's an excellent point. That's something that that's that's a question that hasn't been satisfied by or wasn't satisfied by right. the Clovis police. Sure, they basically were saying the Clovis came down from they came across the land bridge from Siberia mm-hmm. down through North America, got to the Great Plains, overhunted the mastodon, the bison, and, and followed the, them around wherever they the migrated. Mammoth. Right, sure, and. Um, Killed them off, and eventually that led to the the extinction of their own kind. Because the the what's really interesting and curious about the Clovis is they appear out of nowhere yeah. in North America, and, they they, and actually like South and Eastern North America, and mm-hmm. clearly New Mexico. And over the period of five hundred years, they pop up out of nowhere and they disappear into the ether. Yeah, they just show up and they're gone. There's no evidence of any technology leading up to them. Like, you can't see a progression of fluted spearheads that show, like, these people are figuring sure. out how to make the Clovis point. And then you don't see any refining of it or continuation of it right. after this 500-year period. So these people, like, if you're, if you're looking at it just on the timeline of history mm-hmm. and archaeologically, they pop up in the middle of North America – out of nowhere, right. and then just disappear. Pretty cool. Yeah, I mean... Maybe they were aliens. It's entirely possible, Chuck. Uh, there is another theory, though, about why they may have vanished. The Clovis okay. Comet Theory. Let's hear it. Uh, it's also called the Younger Dryas Impact Event, and this is just a few years old. Um, some people theorize that a comet exploded above the Earth's atmosphere around the Great Lakes and basically caught most of North America on fire. Sweet. And not only killed the mastodon and the mammoth, but the Clovis. And there's a little bit of evidence of this. Uh, they found a, a charred, carbon-rich layer of soil at 50 different uh, Clovis age sites, and it contained a bunch of unusual stuff in it that they interpreted as like an impact event. 
Is that the scientific term for that stuff? An unusual stuff? Unusual materials. Yeah. 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 Like weird, what? Weird like stuff. what unusual materials? Don't ask me that. Like stuff that you would find in a comet? Uh, stuff that would indicate there was an impact event. I guess Crazy. like a meteor impact landing, stuff like that. That's awesome. But that's been refuted too. Like, you know. Curses. That's why I love all this stuff. There's all these theories that make sense and then some other person comes along and pokes holes in it and then you're back at square one. All right. So, but that's not how it went with the Clovis barrier. Like, it was fact. As far sure. as anybody was concerned, you had radiocarbon dating. Right. You had um, no other evidence of, of any earlier settlement in North um, or in the Americas at all. Um, and any anybody who put forth a hypothesis other than that was poo-pooed. And they were very successful at controlling the origin of life in North America or in the Americas mm-hmm. for several decades. And then they gave it up and became Scientologists. <laughs> right, yeah. Um <laughs> Until 1975, mm-hmm. that was the beginning of the end of the Clovis first theory. Yeah, sadly. Maybe, maybe not. Because really, the whole reason that you're looking, the whole reason you're spending decades excavating a single site mm-hmm. is to find out the truth. Like, we have to know who is first. We have to know. See, I'm not I'm not in that camp. I know you made a point in your article that it's not really that important who was first, is that wasn't that just like such a hippie ending that I tossed on there? <laughs> I kind of liked it though. It's every, like I, everyone I got up made a contribution like <laughs> afterward. Yeah, we should respect the Clovis man just because yeah. they weren't first. They gave us the hafted, fluted spear. Yeah, I was listening to uh, Hands Across America the whole time I was right. writing this. Good. So, uh, are we going to down south? Let's go down south, Chuck. To Monte Verde. Yes. Okay. Chile. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, the, well, one of the early theories of the Clovis is that they migrated from south to north. No, north to south. They came down. No, originally, the... but didn't didn't they later go on to say? But wait, it looks like they went from south to north. That's what Monte Verde did. Oh, okay. There was a University of Kentucky archaeologist named Tom Dillahay who dedicated uh, twenty five years of his life mm-hmm. to a single settlement in Chile out, outside of Monte Verde, Chile. What a loser! <laughs> <laughs> but this guy managed to quietly and methodically destroy the Clovis first theory. I know. And even better, he brought the Clovis police down to Chile mm-hmm. after he presented his final findings and said, "Yeah, <laughs> I bet they were." That was a sad day for the Clovis police. I think it was. They had to turn in their badges and their uniforms and their little billy clubs. Yeah, they all retired and went yeah. fishing in Florida. So what happened, Chuck? What did what did uh, Dillahay find in Monte Verde? Well, he found uh, he found he found. <laughs> that predated him. <laughs> Irrefutable evidence is another way to put it. Well, that's the non-cursing uh, way to put it, sure. Uh, sure. So you want to know what they found? Yes. They found hearse of wood with knotted strings attached, which was no accident. It meant that a human being uh, tied some string around it. Well, not only that, they also found um, leftover mastodon flesh. Oh, really? Preserved. This is what Monte Verde is just so... Th- this is how archaeology advances by leaps and bounds, by accident. Sure. Monte Verde, um, the site is a bog, um, and it actually preserved this wood, string, mastodon flesh. Right. Preserved it beautifully um, because it's an oxygen-depleted uh, environment. Right, and it was 12,500 years old. That's what radiocarbon dating showed. Mm-hmm. So first of all, you have the fact that um, it's clearly th- these hearths, these... Um, the the knotted string, all this right. stuff. It was clearly presented in a way that this was a settlement. It was mm-hmm. a camp. They estimated it housed like twenty to thirty people. Right. Um, even like the tent pegs are left in the ground. 
That's pretty cool. So it wasn't buried, right? It was just left. Right. And then when the radiocarbon dating proved that, yeah, it was 12,500 years old. So they had a good millennium but on the Clovis. It still doesn't answer how they got there. No, it doesn't. As a matter of fact, it raises even more questions Very because much so. It, what what the Clovis police said was, well, okay, that's fine, that's fine. We'll give you Monte Verde, jerks. But, but how they get here? But here, here's the. This is one thing that was never addressed with the Clovis by the Clovis uh-huh. police is why weren't there any evidence of Clovis settlements along the way from uh, Siberia right. to Canada, Alaska to the southeast, the Great Plains? There aren't any because right. if you come across, if you come down Alaska and Canada into North America, you hit the Great Plains, and brother, there was really good hunting around there 10,000 years ago. You're going to have campsites. You're going yeah. to have some evidence. There was nothing. Like Maybe we they said, haven't they found it, up. though. Is that plausible? It is totally plausible. And I think that's how the Clovis first theory was able to stand for so long is because maybe we just haven't found it yet whatever but this Monte Verde theory turns it on its ear sure because instead of from north to south it suggests they went from south to north and it was 1300 years older yes but I like your theory of how they got here it's not a theory (laughs) it's not my theory it's a it's a hypothesis that other people have suggested as well because the same thing happened uh, in Australia right yeah well possibly uh, think about it. Australia has been a continent, a, a, a unattached continent for 50 million years. Yes. Uh, they believe, archaeologists, anthropologists believe that um, the Aborigines in Australia got there about 60,000 years ago, which means they would have had to have parachuted in or come by boat or swam. Yeah, I think boats the most plausible. And you it have definitely little is. islands along the way that you could stage. And, uh, yeah, you can island hop over there. Yeah. I mean, there's some pretty horrible journeys along the way. Sure. But it's entirely possible. Right. And the theory is that the could have, same thing could have happened to the... Uh, the folks in Monteverde. It's true. Or the other the other way to look at it is there's a lot of people who still believe that they came from a north to south migration pattern, right. but that they just came a lot earlier. So they went north to south and then back up. Okay. That makes sense. It does. Um, the the fly in that ointment is this. There's another site found at Monteverde that is being excavated now. I'm pretty sure Dillahay was like, I'm out. I'm out. I did my thing. Right. You guys take this over. I spent 25 years. Yeah. But they found another camp nearby or evidence of more human activity nearby that's dated to about 30, 33,000 years ago. Which turns this on its ear. Yes. So does that hold to the theory of the waves of migration that you were talking about in the article? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think that I've also heard there's a lot of um, archaeological sites that are underwater right now, they're sure. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, uh, once the ice ages ended, the water levels rose. And who knows what's, uh, uh, you know, underwater along our coasts. Right. And there, there could be definitive evidence sure. that they came by boat. You, we have no idea, ultimately. Right. We just know that the Clovis weren't the first people here. Although they, and how they... They left. Why? Why they vanished? Still don't know. It's it's very interesting. But there there was. It looks like people in Chile thirty three thousand years ago. Wow. Which goes to prove Columbus did not discover America. Right. Full circle. What does this all have to do with me and you living here in Atlanta today? Nothing. On Clovis ground. Yeah. They potentially. Were it has nothing to do with us. That were they in Georgia? They said southeast. Mm-hmm. And and Carolina. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're just a couple of schlubs here in 2009, eh? 
Yeah, and and you ask really there, other than the pursuit of knowledge, other than the pursuit of definitive truth, right? The, it really doesn't apply to us. But it is fascinating. Yeah, I and there's no reason you to say that it's not. I think you could argue that all of archaeology is, I'm not saying pointless, but because uh, I think it's fascinating. Yeah. But what are you doing besides trying to find the truth? And there's value in that. Sure. There's definite value in it. But it's not like they're going to find some ancient cure for cancer, or will they? I don't know. That'd we'll cool. find out. They'll right. keep digging in the meantime, because i got to tell you, Chuck, most archaeologists could care less what you and I think about their field. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sure we'll get some uh, emails about this. Well, since I just said most archaeologists could care less, that means it's time, Chuck, for... Oh, yeah, if you want to read this article, you can type uh, Clovis into the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. Which now means it's time for listener mail. So, Josh, before we have listener mail, okay, we want to talk about something we're excited about. I'm excited about a lot of stuff. You're going to have to specify. Don't switch off your podcast here, people. This is really good. Uh, you recall during the micro-lending uh, episode? Sure. We talked about an awesome website, kiva.org. Right. K-I-V-A. Yeah. And that is where you can donate money, $25 minimum, to satisfy these micro-loans for needy people all over the world. Uh, needy entrepreneurs. Needy entrepreneurs. Right? Yes, it's not a. Yeah, sure. it's not. It's not a charity. Like you're, you're going to ha- help right. fund their enterprises. So if you haven't listened to that episode, give it a listen. And we found out through Kiva you could start a team, and then we started searching around and mm-hmm. found out Denmark has a team. Denmark has a team. Uh, a lot of corporations have gay, teams. Gay, lesbian, and bisexuals have a team. Sure. Uh, who else? Well, the Colbert Nation. Stephen Colbert has a team. Oh, that's right. And we saw that and we thought, hey. They're lame. They're not raising much money. No, there's like a hundred members. Last time I checked, and they've raised like six grand, which I guess is pretty good for a hundred members. But I think we can top that. We could easy. definitely top that. And we have people that write in and talk about the fact this is a free podcast, and they wish there was something they could do. Mm-hmm. Well, now you can go to kiva.org, join the Stuff You Should Know team under Community, mm-hmm. uh, sign up, and join the team, and start donating. And we can start satisfying some of these loans. I love satisfying things. And we'll, uh, we'll keep up with this through the blog and kind of let people know and uh, how many loans we've satisfied. And we're going to keep our eye out for Colbert. Yeah, this is not going to be some throwaway poo-poo idea that like you know, we no. came up with and forgot about like Colbert. We're in this for the long run. Boom! We're going to put it on the blog. And uh, we want the Stuff You Should Know team to, to satisfy these loans. And you can get paid back. That's a cool thing. You can... Give fifty bucks, and if you want, you can. Once the loan is repaid, you can get that money back. Yeah, you can take it and run, or go buy some donuts with it, or you can reinvest it, or you can just donate it to the Kiva Foundation as a whole. Either way, you're helping people in the developing world again yes. fund their own enterprises yep. uh, in, a, in an effort to become self-sufficient for a lousy twenty-five bucks. Plus, you're like a hair's breadth away from Muhammad Yunus, right? I mean, he's right there next to you. Yeah. So go to Kiva.org, check out the Stuff You Should Know team, and uh, join up. And we're going to keep up with it on the blog and and through the podcast. And we will shame you if you haven't joined. Chuck, this is a great idea. Thank you, Chuck. It was a really good idea, man. All right. So now listener mail. Uh, I'm going to just do this one since we're short on time. This uh, You asked people to write in. Um, after the Bhutan uh, Gross National Happiness. Yeah, we've gotten a lot of good responses from that. This is everybody, one. everyone who's written in has this nice, mellow, even keel tone. Oh, yeah. Nobody's been like, help me. Right. Especially this guy. I like Chris. Chris says, uh, in answer to your request for someone who has left the rat race of the American money chase, I think I qualify. 
I live on a commune. This is in a commune. I always thought it was on. He lives in a commune and files taxes under the IRS code 501D, which I don't even know what that is. I've only heard of 501C3. It sounds like some sort of a hippie thing. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I've lived in this commune with my wife for close to 15 years. Before moving in, I grew up in another commune whose income was solely based on donations. So all in all, you could say I've always lived with a yearly salary under $10,000. Man. Am I happy? I'd say yes. I find lots of ways to have fun and live hand-to-mouth. You never really know what you can live without until you rid your life of stuff. When I host visitors at our place, it pretty much blows people's minds. Uh, My wife and I take up three rooms in our building. We try to make the most of our space and not hang on to extra books, clothes, etc. for too long. Uh, Your show in Happiness and Money, your show on Happiness and Money, asks some good questions. I'm a regular listener, and then he signed off. Peace, Chris. Peace, Chris. So You left out his Michelle Shock quote. He has a quote from singer-songwriter Michelle Schock, who apparently once said, if you ever want to, uh, if you ever want an adventure, live without cash. So true. That is an adventure. Yeah. Well, thanks for writing in, Chris. You dirty hippie. Thank you uh, to everybody who took time to write in about um, dropping out of the rat race or just never joining in some cases. Um, and uh, let's see, Chuck, do you want to hear about anything specific from people? For this week? Uh-huh. No, I want people to go to Kiva.org and join our team. Yeah, how about that? Why don't you uh, write in and let us know uh, if you've joined, if you see anybody that you think uh, we should focus our attention on. Let's let's do all things Kiva this week. Yeah. Send it in an email to me and Chuck and Jerry at stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?